channel in the band. That's beautiful. That song's beautiful, isn't it? The house that built me. What is your house? What is the house that built you? You know, we think about our childhood, or I don't know what images are in your mind in a room this big, with everybody, everybody on stream. We all have different houses. We have different houses that built us in unique ways. Isn't that amazing? Some of our homes could be homes that were filled with a lot of love, not as much chaos, maybe not enough. You know, we all have hurts. We all have, no family's perfect, but some maybe are filled with more love than others. I think about my wife's home growing up, first years of joy. A lot of abuse, a lot of hurt, a lot of trauma. And then we have everything in between. We have all different journeys in our family. And so it's interesting how that impacts us, how that molds us and creates us and shapes us and creates identity in us. Some identities that we attach to are not even true identities, not even the identity that God wants to, that's rooted in his truth or he wants us to believe. Some have been put upon us. Some are good, some are bad. And it's amazing to me how impactful that is. I was, the other night I couldn't sleep. I, you know, in 25 years, I've never really slept through the night and I always blame my wife because I'm like, that's when we got married. And so, and she always laughs and, you know, it's a, but I, I, I rarely sleep through the night. So it was four in the morning. I got up in the morning and went downstairs and I've always wanted to watch this Bruce Springsteen on Broadway on Netflix and it's a pretty raw thing, but I wanted to see it. And so I watched the first maybe half of it and he's talking about his childhood, his journey all the way through to being the boss. And so he's talking about New Jersey. He's talking about that neighborhood. He says he was Jersey Shore before Jersey Shore. You know, he created that. And so he talks about what it was like in Jersey with his family and his neighborhood. And he had his whole family around him and his cousins in this church. And, he, and then all of a sudden he gets into talking about his parents. And he talks about his father. It's a really powerful moment in this little hour. And he starts talking about his dad. He starts explaining his dad. His dad was kind of classic, silent generation, distant. He, he would sit at the table. And he says, now, growing up, I realized he was just really depressed and he was struggling. And his father would spend a lot of time at the local bar and his mom would take him down the street and, and tell Bruce, go in there and get your dad and bring him home, you know? And so he would explain these moments and, and he, he would explain his dad. He said, I, I looked down and I could see his boots, his work boots, and then I could see his pants and these work pants and he had a particular belt and then he had a shirt you know and he was my hero man I, I looked up to him and he said you realize something he said uh, all these years I've been writing about factories and working and the working man and all this stuff and I wear the jeans and the boots and the shirt he goes you know what's you know what's the mystery is I didn't do any of that it's all made up he said it was my father I was imitating my dad I created the boss and he's my dad. And he said, I had this dream one time where my dad was sitting in the audience watching me perform and I'm kneeling down. And I said, dad, look at that man up there. And he said, look at, we're looking at me performing. And he says, dad, that's how I see you. It was a super powerful moment where you realize how deeply Bruce Springsteen was impacted by his childhood, even to the point where he created this whole image that wasn't even him. I don't know what kind of images you have of yourself and your family, but family molds us, then they create us and they shape us. And I've always loved the saying, you, you can choose your friends, but you can't choose your family. You can't choose your family. There's, you have no choice. It shapes us, it molds us, it creates us, it gives us identity. But here's what I know. There's a bigger family. There's a bigger family that exists. Our earthly family can be beautiful, it can be hard, but there's a bigger family that exists. It's God's family. And God's family is a different kind of diverse and complex family. 
And so we're going to take a look at this juxtaposition of a family in Scripture, a father by the name of Jesse and a bunch of sons, one by the name of David, and then God's family. We're going to see how families view each other, and then we're going to see how God views each member of his family, and then I'm going to give you a few thoughts, simple thoughts about maybe what it means to be in God's family. So I got to give you some backstory. In this particular time in history, Israel's pleading out to God for an earthly king. They didn't have one like all the other nations, and they wanted their own king. And God really didn't want to give them the king, but they kept praying for it, so he finally gives them the king, King Saul. And as the King Saul goes, he's not doing very well, and God is going to remove King Saul, and he's going to have a new king take over. And so he breathes this into the prophet Samuel, and he says, Samuel, I need to go to a region in Bethlehem, to a house of Jesse. He has sons, and out of those sons is going to be the new king. And so the prophet leaves and goes, and as he's approaching the cities, the elders come out, and they ask him, are you coming in peace? And they knew he was a powerful man in that region, and this is what he says. He says, yes, I come in peace. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. What is he saying? He's saying, come with me. We've got to prepare ourselves to approach God according to the law. And so they had to go through this ritual. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab. And he thought, now Eliab is one of Jesse's sons, one of Daniel's brothers. The first one that the prophet saw, he said, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel this, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. Now I want you to focus on this line. I come back to this line many times in my life. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. The Lord doesn't see people as we see them. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. God evaluates people different than people evaluate people. God sees people differently than we see people. We tend to look at the outward part of a person. We tend to look with our human vision, but God looks at spiritual vision. He's looking at the deep parts of your heart and your soul. If you've heard me speak before, you've heard me say this over and over. I think the most important work we can do in our life is the work that no one else can see other than you and God. The condition of your heart, the condition of your soul, the way you think about yourself, the, the, the talk that you're having with yourself all day long. The Lord wants to actually work at the inner workings of your heart and soul so that the inward part of you becomes the outward part of you. And, and God is saying, I don't, see, I don't see people as you see people. <laughs> I'm looking at the heart of a person, the way they've been created. It's very different. Now, we live in a time right now where it seems like everything is about the outward appearance, especially as it relates to our social media networks. You know, we take about 25 selfies to get the right angle, and I'm just going to let you know, here, there's no right angle with this. Like, I always tell everyone, I'm like, look, just take one selfie and post it because they're all going to look the same. There's no right angle here. I have a, I, I love to fish, and I have two boys, not, uh, 21 and 19, three daughters, almost 30, 30, and 28. None of them like to fish. My wife doesn't like to fish, so I'm all alone, but I have a niece that loves to fish. So she's my favorite niece, and she's, she's my only niece. And so, so we go fishing last year. We're out on the lake. She's catching fish. She's so excited. We're going back and forth. She's like 20, 21. She's really fun. And so she gets a fish. So I take it off. And I give her the fish, and she's holding the fish, and then she gives me her camera. 
take a picture. I said, okay, so I get it all ready. I'm ready to take it. I said, you ready? And she goes, yeah. <laughs> That's how she takes, and, and then and I was like, what, what, what did you just do? I literally said, what did you just do? She goes, no, no, that's my pose. I said, you're holding a fish, you know? So this is what happened. So I take the picture and she goes, give me your phone, give me the phone. Nope, take it again. <laughs> like, it was all these different angles, right? Hilarious, but that's what we tend to do. We tend to really want it the right angle, the perfect appearance. We're gonna post the one that actually represents this perfect image. And so our team thought they would have fun with that and poke at that a little bit and maybe just maybe, you, your family, your friends, this might look a little bit like you. What a nightmare that experience was. Isn't this picture beautiful? The yelling, the name calling, I swear it took an hour to get one photo. Everyone looks just perfect. I just wanted to punch Logan. He is so annoying. Sydney is so dramatic. Every Christmas, I want to make sure that we get the absolute best photo. Every Christmas, we fight and argue to get one photo. Mom is such a freak about this stuff. Mom made me try on like 12 different shirts. Jocelyn made me try on like 12 different shirts. Sydney chose the perfect outfit. Couldn't even see our clothes. We were outside wearing jackets. Grandma and Grandpa showed up, but right in the middle of pictures. They give the best gifts. Then Mom and Dad came by, a little earlier than expected. Logan, always trying to get their attention. Oh, I'm bleeding, I'm bleeding, I'm bleeding. Ah. Oh, 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 Logan, oh, text bleeding. me. <laughs> the worst part is cleaning up afterwards. When you fold a tablecloth, you always fold the bottom to the center. It's not that hard. I can design electrical mechanical systems, but apparently I'm too dumb to fold a tablecloth. So I heard you laughing. I, you can see yourself in that. I love that. That's awesome. But we're always looking for that perfect angle. We're always looking to, 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 to post something uh, that just absolutely is an image of perfection. But God says he doesn't look at the outward appearance. He looks at the underneath. And so this is what happens. Then Jesse called Abinadab, which is another one of his sons, and he had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Then Jesse had Shema pass by, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen any one of these. So he asked Jesse this, are these all the sons you have? And Jesse answers, well, there is still the youngest. He is tending the sheep. And then we get to see a little of the dynamics of their family. Think about this. He has a son that was never invited to the audition. In fact, in some ways, when you read that scripture and study it, I'm not even sure that David even was part of the ceremony, of being part of the consecration ceremony. He wasn't even invited to the table. Have you ever been left out before? I always get those real, uh, you know, those shakes when I think about my elementary school days and waiting to get on the kickball team, you know, and I'm the last one picked. I mean, it was horrible. 
but it gets worse as you get older. You get left out and looked over. And when I read this story, I wonder, how is his siblings viewing David? How is his brothers and sisters, he had two sisters, how are they viewing him? How is his father viewing him? What effect does that have on David? We know if you study David's life, Scripture says that he was a man after God's own heart. So he had the heart that God created him, but he also had brokenness. And when you study his life, you see that there was this, this maybe there's this ability to strive for approval or worth, but he always was kind of struggling with his brokenness. Maybe this had something to do with it, the way his father saw him. I don't know. But it's interesting to see that he was looked over. But Samuel says this. He said, send for this youngest one. We will not sit down until he arrives. So Jesse sent for David and had him brought in, and he was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and a handsome features. And then the Lord said this, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil, appointed him in the presence of his brothers. I'm sure that went well. And from that day forward, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Now, I do want to make one point of clarification in this scripture, I really believe. I don't believe that God was rejecting all of those men or all those brothers. I don't believe he was rejecting the actual person. I believe what God was doing was looking for the heart that he needed for the particular purpose and mission that he had. And so he's scanning the heart of this person because he knows that he has something that he needs this person to do. And so he's not rejecting the people, his, all of his brothers, and throwing them aside. He's just looking for a particular quality of a heart because he knows what he has to do. He knows what the king needs to have in his heart in order to lead the people. And even though Jesse, David's earthly father, never chose him in that moment, God chose David, and he has a vision for him. And so here's what I want you to hear today. I'm going to give you three simple thoughts about God's family. In God's family... Everyone is valuable. In God's family, everyone is useful. And in God's family, everyone is invited, invited in. And so it's very simple, valuable, useful, and invited. First one, in God's family, everyone is valuable. We're going to look at a script, the New Testament scripture in Ephesians. It says this, for we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus. Now, how many of you this morning woke up, walked into the bathroom, looked in the mirror and just said, I'm a masterpiece? How many of you did that this morning? None of you. <laughs> One guy did the out of the service. I'm like, you're arrogant. But no. <laughs> but do you realize something? That you are God's masterpiece. In fact, if you, you look at that, it's really the, the words should be more like handiwork, the craftsmanship of God. You are his workmanship. You are his handiwork. You are his masterpiece. One word that comes out of here, I think, poemia, which means poem. You are God's artistic creation. You are his masterpiece. If you are actually made in the image of God, that means that you've actually been touched by the one that has created all things, means that you are a masterpiece. You may not believe that today. You may not feel like that today, but you are a masterpiece. You are valuable. You are valuable. Craig Mays, who used to teach her years ago as a mentor of mine, he's in New York, working with the homeless community there. He would always say that God looks at you, it, you have unsurpassable worth. You are of, of unsurpassable worth to God. It's how valuable you are. I know sometimes you don't feel that way, but I'm letting you know that you are a masterpiece in God's eyes. You are valuable. And no one is better than 
someone else. You know, my, one of my mentors, Lauren, I haven't said this in any other service, but one time I was meeting with him. He's, he, I got, you know, he's an older guy, he's 86 or so years old. And we were sitting there and he looks at me really serious and he goes, do you know who God's favorite is? I was like, is this a trick question? You know, like, I don't even know the answer to this. And he goes, I am. I was like, man, was that arrogant. And he goes, and he goes, and you are. And everyone is. What is he saying? He's saying you're a masterpiece. God has no favorite. Sometimes in these roles that we play, we elevate others above others. Even in my role as a lead, first among equals here at this campus, sometimes you can say, but yeah, but you're the pastor. You're this person, but I'm just the person in the seats. No, that's not how it goes. No one is more valuable than someone else in God's family. He just has a different purpose for you. And what's interesting to me is the more people I meet in these seats, you are gonna have way more impact in this world than I ever will. A couple weeks ago, I met a couple that sits in our seats, Michael and Gina Spain. They wrote a book called The Color of Rain. It's a New York Times bestseller. They made a movie out of it. And here they are sitting in our seats. They have way more impact than I'll ever have. So I meet with them and I'm just taking notes. Like, we need to hear from you. You're amazing. You know, there are people in these seats. The last service, I, I just happened to mention, you know, there are teachers. I mentioned teachers in these seats. You know, if you're a teacher in this seat, you're every day, you're waking up and you're caring for uh, children and you're giving them vision and you're pouring your life out. And this young teacher came to me in tears last service. And she's like, man, that, I needed to hear that today that I'm valuable, that, I'm, that God looks at me as valuable because you are changing lives. There are parents in this room that every day you're doing things that your kids will never see, but you're growing them into something. You have to understand that you have value, that you're a masterpiece, that you have worth, you're of unsurpassable worth. And though David was seen as the youngest, and from scripture we can kind of assume and infer that his father and his brothers maybe didn't see his value, God saw it. God saw it. David was valuable. So everyone in God's family is valuable. Everyone is useful. I'm going to use that same Ephesians 2 scripture. I'm going from 1 Samuel in the Old Testament into Ephesians into the New Testament. For we are God's masterpiece, handiwork, workmanship. He has created us new in Christ Jesus. So, say the word so. so. Say it like you mean it. So. We can do all what? So that we can do the good things, all the good things he has planned for us long ago. You are his masterpiece and his workmanship so you can do and be useful and do the things that he has planned for you. You have a purpose. God has a purpose for each of his followers. He has plans laid out for his people to accomplish. And many times we don't even see that. We can't even feel it. We're like, man, I'm just trudging through right now. It's mundane. I don't know if I'm doing anything. I don't know if I'm having any impact. You're just going through your life. There have been many seasons of my life like that. And if you've heard me speak before, you heard me say this. Our faith is found mainly in the mundane. You know, we have mountaintop experiences. We have these incredible experiences in life, and those are beautiful. But the majority of our life is just getting out of bed and putting one foot in front of the other and having God create in us this faith that is, looks almost mundane. And sometimes we don't think we're, we're growing. Sometimes we're not think we're being formed. But in God's world, he's forming us. And look, if you feel that way, you're in good company. Because David must have felt that way. He was overlooked. He wasn't seen. He was young. He's probably an older teenager, 17, 18 years old. He's, he's out in the fields. He's probably alone. He's tending to some animals. That job was a really looked at as a low job. He's unnoticed. He's not in the public eye. He doesn't seem to have any kind of future. He's not realizing that his family experience and his life experience was starting to form him. 
and shape him. And we learn about that because he ends up telling us about that later in Scripture. What you may not know is that it was a long period of time before, before that anointing, from that anointing all the way until David was actually appointed king. A lot of years. And what he had to do is he had to actually serve under the reigning king, King Saul. And so there's a moment in time where David's kind of probably known for two things. For a great victory, so he slayed the great giant Goliath, and a great failure, having an affair with a married woman and having all of this catastrophe happen afterwards. But in his great victory as a young man, he explains how he was able or how he was going to step into this and why he was the one out of all the soldiers to actually step in. He's talking to King Saul and he says, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And whenever a lion or a bear came and took a lamb from the flock, I went after it and struck it down, rescuing the lamb from its mouth. And if it turned against me, I would catch it by the jaw, strike it down, and I would kill it. Your servant has killed both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine, meaning Goliath, shall be just like one of them since he has defied the armies of the living God. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm out in the field and no one's watching me and I'm watching a flock and one lamb gets taken by a lion and bear, and I'm like, eh, I got a lot more. <laughs> like, I'm not going after it. There's no way. But do you see what's happening in this? God's, why is he a man after God's own heart? He has a shepherd's heart. He has a heart of protecting. And he's seeing everyone is valuable. Everyone. And he's willing to risk, even when someone's not even watching, he's willing to risk everything, even his own life, to rescue that one. What does that sound like? It sounds like Luke 15. It sounds like Jesus. It sounds like Jesus leaving, the good shepherd, leaving the 99 to find the one. And God said, You're, you have the heart I need. You have the heart of the kind of king I need at this time, that you would shepherd this flock, that you would leave and risk your life to do this. You have the heart I need. You're useful. You're deeply useful. I don't want you to be discouraged today. You've heard me say many times that faith is a process. It takes a long time. David was probably anointed that first time at 17, maybe in his early 30s, he was anointed again to be partial leader of the kingdom. And then in his late 30s, he's probably anointed again to be full king, probably 20 years it took. He had a lot of work to do in there. Faith is a process, step by step. Be patient, but you are valuable. You are useful. And then the last one is you are invited. And so I wanna, I wanna speak a little bit to that, tell you a story about that. Uh, before I do that, we're gonna receive our offering. So if you've come prepared to give, awesome. I just want you to know if you're new here, this doesn't have to be your moment. If you wanna take, take part, awesome. But uh, this offering is our general offering that we do every week. This is the offering that pushes everything that we do from all of our campuses and church plants and global partners all the way through the year. It is separate actually from our Everyone campaign. So what's so stunning to me is that the Everyone campaign was above and beyond this regular giving. And so to have $21.5 million pledged above this is amazing. And all of this... Uh, money that we collect every week goes to all different places. Uh, so it's not only this region and this country, but the world. So just so you know that if you're brand new, uh, that's what we're investing in. We're investing, honestly, in creating family. And we're investing in people. And that's what we really want to uh, give to. So this is an act of worship for Amy and I and for our family uh, to create more family and to really uh, give back what God has given us. So thank you for taking part in that. So in God's family, everyone is invited when I was studying my, uh, in my grad program, there was a video that I got to watch as part 
of one class. And I never forgot it. It was this woman that was walking the streets of San, I think it was San Francisco, I'm pretty sure. And she was walking through the streets of San Francisco. She was kind of lost. She wasn't affiliated with any religion. She was feeling a tug in her life, but she didn't know what was happening. And she was walking down the street and she walked past a building with their doors open. And she looked inside and inside the building there was a table and there were people gathered around the table. And for some reason, she kind of stepped, she was drawn into it. By the way, scripture says that God draws the one he wants. So she felt drawn into this building. She walks into this, this building um, and as she approaches the table, uh, no one says anything to her. They just, they just part the way a little bit. They look at her and they invite her to the table. And so she walks up to the table. They made room for her. And she came and she stood at the table. She didn't know what they were doing at the table, but what they were doing was they were taking communion. This act of remembrance, remember that Jesus came to this earth, he walked this earth, he gave his life as a final sacrifice that anyone that would believe in him uh, would never perish but have everlasting life. And so they're celebrating this idea that Jesus would give his body and would pour out his blood for all people. Well, she doesn't know what this means. So she stands on the table, and they start passing around this communion. It's all passed out, and then they start taking communion. So she's like, well, I guess that's what you do. So she took communion, and she said the moment that the bread, which signifies the body given up from Jesus as a sacrifice, hit her mouth, she said another world opened up to her. It was like I, she said it was like I came home. Now, for the religious people in the room, they're like, that's not, prof- that's not possible. You know, she didn't repent and turn from her sin and claim Jesus as Lord and do it. She didn't do any of that. She just took communion and God supernaturally just opened up her world. To this day, she's a pastor in that region. She runs a church. She's in the name of Jesus, is doing incredible work. All because people made space at a table and invited someone to come to the table. In God's family, it's always invitation. Now, certainly there's challenge, but when Jesus came and walked this earth, his first followers, he said, drop all your nets, all of your, the way you make your living, all of your work, and what? Come follow me, invitation. Come with me. Let me show you. Come with me, and I'm going to show you. But it was always invitation. Come with me. Come to me, all you who are weary and, and have burdens, and I will give you rest. Come with me, and let me show you where I sleep. Come with me, and let me show you what God is doing. It's an invitation. And God is inviting all people to place their faith in Jesus. It's an invitation to come and to be part of a different kind of family, a new way of life, a new reality, or should I say the reality, a family where everyone is valuable and useful and invited. At the time of Jesus, the Jewish people thought they were the chosen people and they were they were the ones that were only allowed access to God. But when through Jesus and his sacrifice and his life, all people had access to God at that point. And so the apostle Paul, who was uh, far from God and had an incredible encounter with God, writes about this in Ephesians 2 as well. And this is the turning point. This is the family verse that I love. It says, but now, say but now. A little bit, say, say more, but now. In Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace. In his flesh he has made both groups into one and has broken down the dividing wall that is a hostility between us. So he came and proclaimed peace to you who are far off and peace to those who were near. For through him both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are citizens 
with the saints and also members of the household of God. You are members through your faith in Jesus to the family of God, built upon the foundations of the apostles and the prophets with Christ himself as the cornerstone. In Christ, the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are built together spiritually into a dwelling place for God. What house built you? God is saying, come to my home. I have a room for you. Come. There's a different family. Now, here's what I want you to hear from me. I'm not saying our earthly family isn't vitally important. Our earthly family is awesome. It is very important. And we need to be creating family here on this earth, no matter what the journey is. There needs to be healing. There needs to be love. There needs to be place. We need to create family and care for family here. But Amy and I really do believe that we don't want our children to believe that this family identifies as who they truly really are made in the image of God. We've known from the very early on that our children are not our children. Our children don't belong to us. Our children belong to God. They're on loan to us. And God said, here, I trust you, care for these children. It's the greatest stewardship gift of our life, but they're not ours. Long after we're gone, I want our children to know that your, your identity, your true identity and the image of God placed in you is found in Jesus Christ. That is your rock. That is your cornerstone. That is who you are. You are part of a royal family. You are part of a bigger family. You are a son and a daughter in a bigger, wider family. That's why I can travel in different places of the world, whether it be the mountains of Nepal or the suburbs of Brazil or the barrios of Honduras or the inner city of Detroit or our neighbors, and I can, I can walk into a home of another follower of Jesus, and what is it? It's family. I'm not a stranger. I'm not an alien. I'm connected in a profound way. Always it's stunning to me that I can be a village in the mountains of Nepal and feel like I'm home because God knows how to create home. Knows how to create family. And he's saying, come, I have something big for you. I have a different kind of family. We can choose our friends, but we can't choose our family. That may be true in an earthly sense, but we can choose Jesus. We can choose Jesus. We can say, yes, I choose to follow you. Yes, I believe that you are the son of God, who you said you were. I believe you came here to walk this earth and to create a way through your sacrifice so that I can come home and I can truly know who I am in the image of God. That's really, to me, what true family is in our community. Let me pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his sacrifice that we're gonna celebrate just in a few weeks, knowing that all who place their faith in Jesus shall never perish but have eternal life found in the family of God, that you didn't come to condemn, but you came to save and to rescue. Rescue from all the things that may be plastered onto our identity that are not of you, that are of this world, that you can take us to another place and show us a wider view rooted in the love and the mercy and the grace of Jesus. So we thank you for that, Lord. I pray for the person in the room that just whispers the words, Lord, I believe. I think about that woman taking communion in this act and all of a sudden seeing a new reality and saying yes to it. I pray for the person in the seats or on stream that can hear my voice that says, yes, Jesus, I believe. In that moment, they are welcomed into a new reality, a new way of life, a new family. 
We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, if you're that person, I had a couple of people come up to me last service and just say, I just want you to know I'm that person. <laughs> you know, I said yes. And so we prayed together. I'd love to pray with you in the lobby or down front, any of our team would. Uh, but we're gonna end this service by proclaiming truth with our voice, <laughs> by singing. Now, some of you may think I'm not a good singer. doesn't matter, God doesn't care. I mean, your neighbor might care, but God doesn't. But <laughs> the reason we sing many times is because we sing out truth in a room and it, and it can come alive. And sometimes you're sitting or standing next to somebody or around someone and they can't get the words out because they, they know that there's truth there, but they just can't quite say it yet. They just need to hear their neighbor say it over them. And so we sing to sing truth out into the world that sometimes will not give us truth. And so we're gonna sing the first song. It's gonna say, here's the truth of who you really are. You are a child of God. And the second song is gonna say, and by the way, there is a love that's so reckless that it will pursue you to the end of time and invite you into this new reality. Let's stand. If you're able, I invite you to stand and let's sing this out as a community.